All right, we're continuing our journey through the book of Habakkuk. This morning we find ourselves in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Um, this is the passage that moved Martin Luther to recognize that a reformation was needed. It moved him such that he said, this is, this is the whole of the Christian truth that the just shall live by faith. And it sparked a change that we have benefited from and we continue to benefit from. And it's something that we need to continue to wrestle with. It's, it's a passage that is quoted in three other places in our New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10, Galatians 3, and Romans 1. It's a critical text for us to consider because I think oftentimes we get something fundamentally wrong. Do, do you know what the antithesis to faith is? It's doubt, right? No. It's not doubt at all. In fact, faith is clinging to what you have remembered to be true in the face of overwhelming and crushing doubt. Now the antithesis to faith, as we're going to see from this text, and is critical for us to understand and to examine ourselves against, is arrogance. Would that the church believe that. Would that we as Christians really understood that when we in arrogance approach the world, when we in arrogance approach other brothers and sisters in Christ that may be slightly different from us, when we in arrogance think we know more than actually that we know, we are actually not at all displaying the glory of our great God. We are children of the devil who was so arrogant to say that he knew more than God that he knew better than God, that he didn't have to believe the whole of the scriptures, that he could pick and choose, cherry pick what he liked and use it for his own gain as he attempted to deceive Christ in the, in the wilderness. Remember, he quoted scripture to Christ. He says, don't you know the psalm that says that even if you were to stub your toe, hundreds of angels would come to your aid? Don't, why don't you try jumping down and see if it's true? See, Satan twists scripture. He loves Scripture because he can, he can twist it. We we're just talking to someone this week. Um, if I were the devil, and this is going to sound like the Andy Gullahorn song, if those of you who are familiar with that song, I would not wear red horns and a cape. I would not be cloven hoofed. You wouldn't know that it was me at all. You wouldn't see me coming. What I would do is get you to believe certain things wholeheartedly and, and defend them and even fight for them that were wrong. So often we think we're doing things that are selfish when actually they're not selfish at all. To destroy yourself is not selfish. It's just ignorant. And so often what we have called selfishness is not really selfish at all. To truly be selfish is to try to be a child of God where life truly is. To desire life so much and so deep that we would actually pursue the things of God. That's truly to be selfish in a good way. So often... We're tangled up in other things that, that actually have us confused and we're chasing after the wrong things in our arrogance and in our pride. And so we this morning, I hope, will have a, a, a bit of a better understanding and be able to have some sort of framework from which to ask the question, which do we really identify with? What, what, not what you want to identify with, not how you see yourself but how others actually see you. Do they recognize you as a person of faith who is truly made righteous in Christ alone by grace alone? Or are you 
arrogant, even in how you speak of grace. It gets paradoxically tough in a hurry, doesn't it? So, part of that is to first ask the question, and this I think reveals something, is what do you trust in most for direction and wisdom in life? So, so where do you turn when you have a question, when you have something that you're struggling with, when you need comfort, when you need something, a word, truth of some kind, where do you turn because this evidence is what you depend upon? This evidence is what you truly have faith in or don't have faith in, as it were. And it's a question that only you can answer as you put yourself before the Holy Spirit and ask him to truly show you. Because so often we like to answer if, if we were pressed. If I came to you and said, hey Susan, what do you turn to? And put her on the spot. She's going to answer like she would think I would want her to answer more than likely. It's what we do when we're confronted by anyone with any sort of authority, right? We give them the answer they want to hear. Instead of actually being able potentially to be set free by finally being honest and saying what is true. I look for truth on Pinterest. That's, I would hope you wouldn't turn there. That's not a good place as it turns out. Probably. So where can we finally be honest? Where can we finally come to terms with, because listen to me. I mean, I, I, I see it in here, right? How many of you, um, when you go to a movie that you really want to see, you show up five, ten minutes late? It got kind of quiet. How many of you, when you, you know that you're, you're going to a movie, you, you don't use the bathroom before so you don't have to get up in the middle and, and disturb everybody around you? How many of you, when you go to a movie that you really want to see, you make sure you've got all your Coke, you've got all your popcorn, you've got everything you need, your juju beads, your, thin, or your, your junior mints, whatever it is that you, you make sure you've got it all. You're not getting up in the middle of that drama. You're not going to miss one second of what you have come to expect and desire to see. Now, how many of you take this sacred drama so lightly. You don't care if you hear the call to worship or not. It's just some guy droning on up there about scripture because it's probably not connected to the rest of the thing anyway. Well, that's not true here. I don't care if I miss the first couple of songs because Josh and them are kind of, they're just kind of getting their feet under them anyway and it's usually not that good. So I, I, as long as I'm there by the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon, I should be fine, right? I should get out of this all I really need, right? Hour and a half, an eternity, if you will. Never mind, you made it through all three Lord of the Rings at three hours a clip. Or Star Wars or whatever it is that turns your crank. So why is this sacred drama of less value to you? Is it because we do it every week? Is it, because, is it because it's, it's just become commonplace to you? Is it because maybe you've grown arrogant and you no longer have the faith to believe and expect from it what you ought? Because 
This is just a show because there's a guy up on a stage with a microphone and, and it's just nothing that we actually participate in. We, we ought not bring anything necessarily to the table. You're more concerned with when we're ending than when we're beginning. You're more concerned with length of this or that than the actual content and value. Neil Postman hits us square in the heart in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He says, the, the real issue is not blasphemy. It's trivialization. Think about that for a second. Because when you blaspheme something, you at least are having to deal with it. When you trivialize it, you make it into something that it is not. And you disregard it. I think that we are in close proximity and risk to trivializing this. Myself included. And I'm the guy that's supposed to get up here and preach and do all this stuff to try to make it go. See, I'm okay with the fact that we are a non-formal church. I'm okay with that. But we are drifting into informality and trivialization if we're not careful. And that is worth us considering. So I, I just ask you again, would you, of anything that you expected, if you truly thought that you were going to hear from God this morning, how would it affect how you came in? How would it affect your expectancy? How would it affect what, what you, your awareness, how would it change things? And maybe you would push back and say, well, maybe if y'all sing some songs I've heard before for crying out loud, that old strong, tempted, and I ain't never even heard that before. Who's Derek Webb? Is he even still a Christian? Or maybe if you would give certain illustrations, maybe, if, if, maybe, 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 just maybe. So I don't, I don't, don't, yeah, am I, am I, am I getting up in your car a little bit? Yes, I am. I am. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of irritated about what we've become. Because I do think we're, we're closer, and you should want me to be irritated about it. Because for us to trivialize this, this sacred drama, though we do it every week, is to actually not hurt God one iota. It is to actually disavow ourselves of something that is so needed week in and week out. Who of you could say, honestly, I had such a good week, I don't need God this morning. I am, everything's going so good for me right now that I don't, I don't need this. I don't need this from you. I don't need this from anyone else. Nobody can say that. So, are we coming arrogant? Or are we coming truly expectant in faith, recognizing that this is the means of grace that the, that the Lord God has given to us and wants for us to drink deep from? Amen? All right, well, let's turn to the text, as it were. But before I do that, let's catch us up to where we are. So Habakkuk looks around at the world that he's in in Judah and he recognizes something is wrong. And he will not be silent by what he sees. Right? He sees that something is off that is actually harming the people of God. He 
recognizes it doesn't harm God. It harms the very people of God. It actually hurts them, not God. And so he recognizes that there's only one person that can deal with this rightly. And so he again turns to the Lord his God and he says, Lord, something is wrong. Something is off. We need to hear from you. Where are you? And the Lord responds and he says, I intend to deal with this. And I'm going to deal with it in a way that's going to cause great wonder. And he says, I'm going to bring a people, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they're going to sweep through Judah. And if they want blood, I'm going to give them blood. And so Habakkuk says, Lord, here's what I know to be true about you. And it just doesn't seem to fit Right? Habakkuk is doing the, the hard work of theology, saying, Lord, this is what I know that you are. And how does that square? How does that reconcile with what you're choosing to do? The kind of questions that we don't like to ask anymore. And he does this amazing thing where he says, but I will stand my watch. Though I have these great questions and I, and I can't seem to make it all fit together, I will stand my watch waiting for you. And when you answer, I will have a word to then turn and give to the people. And so this is God's response to Habakkuk's last complaint. It's the beginning of the response. We'll finish it up next week. And so in this response, he's going to say these famous words that the righteous shall live by faith. So if you would, it's important for us to understand that that holds the whole of the book of Habakkuk together. And many argue that it holds the whole of the Bible together. This one statement that the righteous shall live by faith. In contrast to the arrogant who will die in their arrogance. Hear what Cyril J. Barber says, who's a, an evangelical scholar, in his book Habakkuk and Zephaniah. He says, faith in God was the key to consistent living, even though violence abounded and justice was perverted. One, two, through four. That short statement helps believers to persevere even though God chastens them. And they cannot understand his ways. It provides a solution to the doubt they sometimes feel in his all-wise providence and helps them to understand his righteous judgments. In the final analysis, faith provides the key to understanding the Lord's sovereign purpose and it leads men to worship. Turn to the text. This is Habakkuk 2, verses 2 and 3. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. So the Lord here is telling Habakkuk that he's going to give him a vision, which is going to be the rest of chapter 2, that is something that he needs to write down and he needs to put it on tablets. Now, why do you think he would need to write it on a tablet? Well, that is because it's a permanent thing. It's something that is guaranteed to happen and it also gives it a covenantal hue. Remember, what was the law written on? Stone tablets. And so he's saying, write this so that they will know for a fact this is going to happen and make it so clear that if someone were running, why would they be running? Because the Chaldeans are coming. That if they were running, they would run by this tablet and recognize straight away 
that the Lord God is going to be faithful to preserve a remnant no matter what's happening. That those who are going to attack you will be called to account for their sin as well. He is giving them a vision of grace and hope. And his desire is that it would be clear. Well, let me ask you, church. Has God not given us a vision of grace and hope that is crystal clear in the person and work of Jesus Christ? That's not to say that that answers every single solitary question that we have, but as far as the questions go, in the end, is it not written permanently that Christ is our hope? That even if everything comes apart at the seams, that we cannot be pried from the hand of Christ. And for God's church, that should be good news because he calls us into some dark circumstances, doesn't he? He calls us into some very dark places, doesn't he? He even allows the darkness sometimes to sweep in upon us. And if we did not have a clear vision, we would be swept away. So here we have God showing yet again his faithfulness to his covenant people and his love for his people. Now, is it an easy vision for them to see and read? It's clear, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. If you know anything about the people going into exile, you know this is going to be painful, isn't it? This is going to hurt. But there's something that can hold them fast in the midst of a dark and broken and fallen world. And the Lord is always faithful to make sure that there is some measure of grace to evidence his love and his work in our lives. I was just talking the other day about a circumstance. I worked for a gentleman for a number of years who was paralyzed from the neck down. And and the Lord used that circumstance to preserve me during one of the darkest parts of my life. There were times even in the midst of that that I wanted for John to die so I could be released. And the Lord in his grace did not let him die. He held him fast and in essence held me fast. And so often, even though we can't see something in the middle of the circumstances, the Lord is always at work and he makes it clear in time, doesn't he? How many of us could testify to the goodness of God who has brought us through again and again and again, remaining faithful and good to his people? And so yet again, he wants to make clear that they would know. And he says, it is something worth you waiting for. Watch for it, because it is sure and it is coming. Krish Candia, who I've quoted before, the book Paradoxology, Why Christianity Was Never Meant to be Simple, says this about waiting. Waiting is difficult, though, because we like to feel we are doing something. But the waiting that God asks for is not tedious passivity. He encourages us to wait actively, giving ourselves to God's purposes in the world. Waiting involves continually living by the values of the coming kingdom, knowing that one day they will be vindicated by God himself. Waiting is also difficult for us because the more we have to do it, the more we are inclined to give up hope. But waiting can be a powerful testimony of our true allegiance. See, what's interesting about waiting is that it's, it does, it proves who we really are in a way that no other set of circumstances can. 
Now, how many of you like that that's true? How many of you say, Lord, I, would you just make me wait? That'd be awesome. I, something I really want, just take, take it away from me and make me wait for it. And don't tell me when it's coming back. That would be great. No, no, no. No, quite the opposite. Many of you know the anguish of waiting. Many of you know what it's like to ask the Lord to remove something and he chooses not to. That maybe even, which I think is one of the most difficult passages of all in the New Testament, maybe, maybe even like Paul he would say, no, I will not remove it. My grace is sufficient for you. And maybe you'd want to push back and say, why me, Lord? Why not Cameron? He seems to like to talk about all this stuff. Let him have the thorns, all of them. And as your pastor, terrifyingly, I don't want them any more than you do. But for some of you, if I could take it, I would. Even if it was just to give you a break for a moment. But I can't, and none of us can, only Christ can who took all of the thorns for all of time for all of God's people. And so, while we wait, it proves out who we really are. So, what do you struggle most with in the process of waiting? What, what is it about waiting that is hardest for you? Different personalities are going to struggle with it in different ways. For those of you who are very active, it, it just kills you to feel like you're not doing something. It just absolutely wrecks you out to not feel like there's some sort of progress of some kind moving somewhere, doing something. Well, my hope is that you'd recognize, no, you're not just being idle. In fact, what ought grow most is your worship. What ought grow most during the period of waiting is your faith. That is where the spade work should truly be done. That is where you will pay the biggest dividend. That is where you will be most blessed. And there are some of you that part of waiting, what hurts you is that it, you think it's a comment on who you are. You think it's personal. You think it's that God's mad at you. You think it's that if you would just learn some truth that God would let go and, and let you receive what it is you think you need. Is that, is that how it works? Is that good reformed theology to think that there is some work that we could do that actually would bring redemption? That's not good theology at all. It's bad theology. But it's true that we wrestle with it, don't we? That we would just, Lord, is, is it, can I give enough to the poor that you just let me go? Just leave me alone for a little bit. No. No. Could I just maybe serve at the extension a couple times a month or something and, and, and you just look the other way and everything would be okay? No. It's not how it works. So it's good for you who are in waiting who think it's a personal comment to remember what Christ has deemed true of you and what is no longer true of you in Satan and cling to that and grow in that in a way that only the waiting can bring because God is faithful. This is one of the reasons that I think it's so critical and I've tried to encourage us as a church to be regular in practicing remembrance. This becomes so critical for our children as well that we would often be able to testify and look back at how God has been so good and so faithful though you may be standing in the midst of a difficult circumstance right now. 
Forget not how he has been faithful and good and merciful and gracious to you over the whole of your life. Remember these truths often and celebrate them even as you wait for new opportunities to remember God's goodness. I can testify to you over and over and over again of circumstances that I thought that we had crossed a precipice and we were never coming back. Now, I don't mean to be overly uh, caustic about it. I don't mean that I was going to die necessarily, but certain situations with my children where I thought, I've done it now. We're never coming back from this. We're never going to have a decent Thanksgiving. We're never going to have a decent Christmas. We're never again going to dine at the same table and it mean anything. And I'm here to tell you, at least as it stands right now, though I have a penchant to mess it up again, as it stands right now, both of my children have been restored to to me. Both of my children now feel comfortable dining at my table and asking and seeking wisdom. That had nothing, let me just tell you, it had nothing to do with me, by the way. Because I had set my jaw like flint. And yet the Lord in his graciousness and his faithfulness did exactly what he said he would do, which is restore. Amen? And what has been in your period of waiting for you who have waited and the Lord has responded, what did you find most helpful? And how might you help others who are waiting to wait well based on how the Lord engaged you? So often I think we're afraid to step into the middle of other people's grief. It is thorny ground, isn't it? It is a, it's filled with landmines and you can say all kind of really bad and, and foolish things. But you know what I have found with most people in grief? They are very forgiving by and large. And they are willing to receive whatever offering, even pitiful though it may be, that you may have. And probably, and and Jennifer and I were just talking about this this morning, about doing some some training for our leaders and then for our church at large as to how to engage grief. Because I think this is probably the area where we could become most missional. Because everybody goes through it at some point, right? And everybody struggles when they go through it. And so if we were equipped to deal with it well, we could love our neighbors well. We could love each other well. But, but probably the, the easiest technique is to go up to somebody and say these words. I have no earthly idea what to say to you right now, but I want you to know I love you and I'm praying for you. And if you would deem there's anything I can do for you, tell me. But so often we're afraid to even get into that space, aren't we? We're afraid to bring it up. We're afraid to, to maybe offend Do you think it would be offensive to tell somebody you're thinking about them, love them, and praying for them? I'd hope not. If we're that easily offended, we got bigger problems. And so, this is an area in which the Lord has equipped and called us to engage one another, to help one another wait well, um, and to be able to serve one another in those moments. Let's turn back to the text, verses 4 and (coughs) 5. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. 
So here what God is doing is helping Habakkuk to understand that the issue is not nationality. It's not an issue of the Chaldeans and the Judeans, which is kind of what, where, where Habakkuk's headspace was. Remember, he said, how in the world can you take an instrument so unrighteous and use it against the, the, the righteous ones? Well, were the people in Judah truly righteous? Is that why Habakkuk cried out in the first place? No. So God here is helping Habakkuk to understand it's not about your birthright. It's not about where you were born. It's a question of life and death. It is a question of faith and arrogance. If you are going to be arrogant, if you are going to demand that you know better than God, if you're going to say, I don't really need God in some way, shape, or form, that is going to bring you death over life. But if you are willing to submit and say, no, Lord, I, I need you. I, I need your covenant faithfulness. I need your love. I need your forgiveness, redemption, healing. Then there's life in that. There's life in persevering in that truth. Because here it's not just a matter of confessing. In the Hebrew, the word faith actually indicates also a persevering. This is what James means when he says in chapter 1, when he talks about how the faith will, those who continue or persevere in faith will be given the crown of life. See, it's easy to confess something. It's much more difficult to cling to it in the midst of difficult circumstances, isn't it? And difficult circumstances are coming for Judah. Difficult circumstances are coming for the church in America. I don't know if you're reading the headlines, and I'm not, I'm not skies falling chicken little, but it's, it, it is well slouching toward Bethlehem. Larry Wells and I were just talking about an article in which um, Hillary Clinton made it very, very clear that in order for certain institutions to continue in this country, they are going to have to change what they believe on a whole range of topics. I'm pretty sure that in my lifetime, the church will lose all of its tax-exempt status and all those things. They are coming for it. The ax is being laid to the root of the tree. And we will find out who cares about the gospel continuing, whether or not they get paid a certain amount or whether or not there are certain benefits. And God will still be faithful even in the midst of that. He will still preserve a remnant. His covenant faithfulness will continue. And so the question for us is what is it that we, do we cling to? What is it that we, we find comfort in? Is it ourselves? Is it our abilities? Is it something other than God? And what are the evidences of faith? Right? I would think prayer is a pretty significant one. If, if you're prayer life, and I'm not talking about George Mueller prayer life here, for those of you who know, three, four hours a day praying for food trucks to come for orphans. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But if you, if you have no prayer life whatsoever, that's a pretty good indicator that faith may not be your strongest suit. If worship, if you, if you don't have an expectancy about worship and God's word and the means of grace, you may be growing arrogant in heart. Be warned, Christian. Because arrogance leads to death. Listen to what John Calvin says about this particular passage. He says, it follows 
but the just shall live by his faith. The prophet, I have no doubt, does here place faith in opposition to all those defenses by which men so blind themselves as to neglect God and to seek no aid from him. As men therefore rely on what the earth affords, depending on their fallacious supports, the prophet here ascribes life to faith. But faith, as it is well known, and as we shall presently show more at large, depends on God alone. That we may then live by faith, the prophet intimates that we must willingly give up all those defenses which are wont to disappoint us. He then who finds that he is deprived of all protections will live by his faith, provided he seeks in God alone what he wants, and leaving the world fixes his mind on heaven. So what did, John Calvin just made it very clear that, that the issue is faith and arrogance. It's, it's where are you being dependent? My hope is that we would grow as a church in our dependency upon God. Not the things of the world, not the means of the world, not what the world has to offer us in any way, shape, or form. That we would become a congregation who are well known for their faith. That we would be well known for expecting God to show up and do not just our own personal preferences, but even bigger than what we would desire. Because if not, we're just minding the store, and the store will close someday. So, which of these descriptions best describes you? Is it that the righteous, are you living by faith? Are you finding life more abundant in the faith that you have in Christ? And if the answer is no, that doesn't mean you're out. That means you've got to deal with it. That means you're being confronted by it. Or are you more arrogant, finding that you, like this person, for whom wine, or in some translations, wealth, is a traitor? We've talked about this before. Is there ever enough? For those of you who have been an addict, don't raise your hands, by the way, but I am one. I can tell you, and you all can testify, there was never enough. And there is no depth at which, at times, you would not sink to achieve what it was that you wanted or thought you wanted, and never did it bring life, which is why it was never enough. And so, it's critical that we see that the Bible understands this, this truth incredibly well. That even if the grave were filled in full, meaning his greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he never has enough. Does that describe you? What is it that describes you? Do you live in pride and arrogance, never being satisfied? Or do you live by faith alone? through God's grace alone and Christ alone. So as we close out the sermon, here's just three things that I would hope that we would come away with from this. One is that God's desire is to graciously comfort his people with his word. Even when we are confronted and it just feels like it leaves us a little bit raw, why does he do that? Sometimes you've got to make it raw so it can heal. Sometimes you have to be confronted so that something will change because you won't listen any other way. Sometimes you need to be offended. 
I need to be offended. Second, that God will be faithful to bring to pass exactly what it is that he promises. Third, that those who are arrogant in belief are in self-denial of God and that leads to death ultimately, not more life. And that those who have faith in him and his word, that is what leads us to life and righteousness. Amen? So is any of this easy? Do you just, is it now, hey, that was just a really easy sermon. Now you guys just go practice faith. Is this, that the easy part or is now come the hard part? Now comes the hard part. Living it out. Coming to terms with the aspects of your life that ultimately are arrogant and not in faith. Trying not to, to, to let that which you have seen be abusive of, of the word faith and distort what you ought believe, the name it, claim it, prosperity side of the gospel. To not let that cause you to feel like you don't have the ability to be expectant or zealous or whatever it may be. But it is also very, very important bringing it all the way back around to worship and the other means of grace. That we remember that the Lord in his great mercy has provided a number of things by which to nourish us. And one of those beautiful things that he has given us to nourish us on a regular basis is the Lord's table. Do you understand that a huge part of this is not that you have everything together in order to be able to take. Do you realize that? Because if, if you've got to have everything in order to be able to take, none of us can come. Now there are some things that do keep us from the table. I want to make sure you know what they are. If you don't believe in Christ, this table is not going to nourish you. In fact, it could serve in some sense as a curse to you. So don't take to try to fake it till you make it kind of deal. Just let the elements pass by. If you harbor in your heart blatant unforgiveness towards someone else, meaning you think they ought just go to hell and you couldn't care less, you can't take at this table either because this is a table that says you who also ought go to hell won't in Christ alone. And you cannot keep from someone else which you have been so richly and graciously granted as we read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 through no work on your part but God's grace alone. And if you are currently under church discipline, I don't care what church it is. I don't care if you agree with it. You shouldn't take of this table. But if you are a confessing Christian who recognizes your great need for nourishment of your faith because you recognize you live in a fallen world and you need some help, this table is for you. Let me say one other thing. You'll notice that there are a few of those discs in the plate. If you have some sort of gluten allergy, the bread is not gluten-free and the squares are a little bit larger this time. So if for some reason that might not be a good thing for you, I don't want you to take of the Lord's Supper and then be mad about it later today because you don't feel well. So those discs are present in the, in, the, in the plate as well. And those are gluten-free, nutrition-free, taste-free, the whole nine yards. And so we're working on a better solution long-term for you as well because we don't want you to feel like second-class citizens. Oh, the discs are good enough for you because... God struck you with a gluten allergy. 
Um, and so, so please, by all means, recognize that this is one of those means by which your faith will be nourished. This is the means by which you can live by your faith. So Christ in his great grace to us took bread on the night of what was his last Passover with those he loved and the first Lord's Supper. He took and he broke it. And he said to them, this, this is my body and it is broken for you. And what he meant was it was broken for you so that you would never ever have to feel the breaking that comes from the weight of sin and death. Praise God that his body was broken for us. And then he took the cup and he says, this, this is my blood spilled for the new covenant. And what he meant was that you would now be covered in the righteousness of Christ. That, that we would never again have to stand before God and fear. Amen? That we could boldly come before the throne of grace to receive what it is we so desperately need in the time of waiting. In the time of sorrow and the time of hurt. And so it represents his blood that was so beautifully spilled for us. And so he gave us the brokenness of his body and the spilledness of his blood so that we could have life more abundant. Now we here at Christ Community Church recognize that these elements are not the actual body and blood of Christ. And, but by the same token, we don't believe that it's just mere memorial either. That there is something spiritual that we expect to happen when we take communion here at Christ Community Church. That in the same words of John Calvin, that we would be lifted up by the Spirit before the very throne of grace in the moment we take. To be strengthened and nourished. And so my hope is that you have prepared already as you have come knowing that we were taken. But if you haven't, we're going to hold the elements and take all together as one at the very end. So you'll have some time to pray. You'll have some time to process. And remember, you'll never, never get all of the sins you committed just this morning out. But instead, confess that you're in desperate need of what it is Christ is offering in the table. Amen? All right, I'm going to pray for the elements if the elders would come forward. We'll start with the bread. So as it comes around, take and hold. And then the, um, the juice will come around and you can take and hold it as well. And then we'll stand together and take as a family. Father, thank you for your broken body. May it be blessed to deliver us from guilt and shame. God, I pray that as we take the bread that is broken for us, that you would, in the power of the Spirit, remind us of all the ways that we are forgiven and that we now can come boldly before the throne of grace. And God, we thank you also for the spilled blood that covers us, that makes us righteous before you, that allows us to be at peace with you, justified, made new, resurrected. May we drink deep knowing that it is the spring of life. And God, I pray that your spirit would stir deep within us to call forth faith that is true in you by God's grace alone, in you alone. I pray that we would be able to be a people most alive, a people who are pushing back the darkness, a people who are willing to engage where death has claimed territory. 
Lord, I pray that this table would, would stir deep within us a dependency upon you and a desire to be missional in this very broken and fallen world. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.